The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Zephaniah, chapter 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. How quickly we make this world about us. It's often that that makes our suffering so surprising. But this is a world about you, about putting your worth on display, even in the midst of hardest times of life. I pray that you would carry us and meet us today. I pray that as bridges are built between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that you would open eyes to see and to savor the work of Jesus more. Help me be a good guide. Help us take seriously your holiness in increasing ways. I pray these things through Jesus' name. Amen. Hell exists because God is good. Hell doesn't exist because God is bad. Hell exists because God is good. God is a good judge. All of us have been wounded deeply by others in different ways. And if God took that wounding against us lightly, He would not be a good judge. But He says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Because He's a good judge. And he takes sin very seriously. This is a text about a serious God. The book has three parts, and we are in this middle part. The setting of the Savior's summons to satisfaction, a call to Godward reverence. Last week, we... or. Two weeks ago, we looked at the context for the call to Godward reverence. Then last week, we dove in and saw the call itself and the basis for the call with respect to Jerusalem. Today, we're going to focus in on verses 14 through 18 and see how the judgment of God is broadened to the whole world. None will get away. The basis of the call for the whole world. So here we go. Be silent, it says in verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated His guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish everyone who... I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar! 
For all the traders are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine for them, from them. He started out by saying, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. And now in verse 14, he reiterates that same statement. But he adds one word. The great day of the Lord is near. Near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. Now he unplaques the the terror of this day. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind. Why? Because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of His jealousy... All the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. We begin here in verse 14. It's a great day. In this context, not a day of cheering. Great in the sense of either Massive in scope, so it's a movement from focused on Jerusalem to now a focus on the whole world, and so he adds that term great, or it could even mean a shift temporally from the Babylonian destruction on Jerusalem to what is future and still to come that will face all the world. We know that that's in the text, that, that's part of what he's talking about, because his, his destruction is global. We see a shift like this when regular suffering in the Bible is called tribulation and the ultimate big daddy is called the great tribulation. Right now, it's the same type of persecution. It's the same type of false teaching, but it's happening in pockets around the world. And it's been happening for 2,000 years. Major people groups under massive oppression by Outward, serpent-like God hostility. And yet we here in the West, here in the U.S., have enjoyed an extended season where we haven't had that type of tribulation. But it's increasingly looking like it's drawing near to us as well. But we're not in the center of the world, nor are we in the center of history. Christians throughout history have been experiencing massive tribulation. And it will only increase. God is going to come and destroy 
all sinners and put an end to all sin. It's called the day of the Lord. A single day, that's all it's going to take him to eradicate all evil. He's that great of a warrior, that strong of a mighty one. It says here two characteristics of this day in verse 14. What do we read? What are the two? Near and Okay, coming quickly. We see that part. Now, for Zephaniah to say that, and this is the word of the Lord, that the great day of the Lord is near, and here we are 2,700 years, 20, sorry, 2,600 years removed from Zephaniah, and it's still near. So he's got to be thinking within the big lens of God's time. But he's speaking this way in order to awaken people from taking sin lightly, becoming complacent. That was last week. Don't let God's enduring patience move you to take Him lightly. Rather, let it move you to stand in awe of mercy. Because everyone should be wiped out. Were it not for Noah's, the Noahic covenant, judgment would have rolled over the earth multiple times over. The Noahic covenant, where God turns his bow up rather than down and says, I'll never again destroy the world with water, it provides a very context for a Messiah, the Christ, to come. Without that covenant, there would be no cross. Because all of us are born into a world with a problem and we're it. We're part of the world's problem. And God is serious against sin, and He will judge it. He judged it at the flood. He judged Sodom and Gomorrah. He judged the Canaanites. And He will judge again. So we get this near and coming fast. What's the second characteristic that we have in, the, in verse 14? Pardon? What's bitter? The sound of the day of the Lord. It's bitter. Now it says here in the ESV, the mighty man cries aloud there. So we already heard about wailing, right? Up in verse verse 10 and 11. A cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. And I think that's why the ESV has rendered it this way. So we read, the mighty man cries aloud there as if the strongest soldier will be nothing in the wake of this day. But there's another possibility. Does anybody have an NIV in here today? Today. You've got an NIV on you? Okay, just... (laughs) All right. (laughs) Uh, Read how the NIV has it good and loud. Um, just the second half. Okay. Listen, the cry on the day of the Lord will be bitter, the shouting of the warrior there. And what do you see with warrior? What, how is it spelled? W-A-R-R-I-O-R. Lowercase or capital? Lowercase. Ah, 
You have the old NIV. Anybody have the new NIV? Yeah, <laughs> Okay. Well, the 2011 NIV has warrior in capital letters. And what the NIV translators were recognizing is that the only other place in this book that that word, the mighty man, shows up is in chapter 3, verse 17. Look over there with me. Chapter 3, 17. Who is the mighty one? The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one, a warrior who will save. So it's possible that what you have here is not the sound of a of a human strong man weeping in tears. We saw that already. That, that was true up in verses 10 and 11. But what we may have here, because the word for cry is different than what we hear up there. It's, it's, it's not the same term. And so what this may actually be is the bitterness of the day on a global scale is because Yahweh, the Lord of armies, is raising His voice over the entire land. And that cry, his battle cry, becomes bitter to the sinner's soul. We're going to hear more about the sound when we get to verse 16. In verse 15, we now read terror. So the timing is expressed. And the sound, it's a tortuous sound, is declared. Now in verses 15 and 16, the actual terror is unpacked. And more than in any other place in all the Old Testament, Zephaniah's two verses right here bring together all these images that are just dotted throughout the prophets in trying to to capture what this day of the Lord is all about. A day of wrath is how it, that's the overarching statement. And then right after the day of wrath comes, then you have these pairs that are lined up. So the question right off the bat is, who's wrath and against what? A day of wrath. Who's wrath? Against? Sin? And sinners. Someone that I love dearly, struggling with homosexual practices, said, Does God hate me? Asked me that. It's probably 15 years ago. And you have to be careful how you answer that. Because God loves her. And God hates her at the same time. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The world. And this individual was part of that. We're all part of that world. But then what does it say? John 3.16 is a scary, scary verse. In evangelism, when I'm getting to know someone, often I'll say, do you read the Bible? Oh, yeah, I read the Bible. 
What's your favorite verse? What's the answer? John 3.16. And I'll say, you're kidding me. That is a terrifying verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Do you believe in Him? That verse says He's the only Savior. The only means for reconciliation with God. Otherwise, you're standing as His enemy. Hear that. He doesn't just hate sin. He hates sinners. And it will be sinners who will be in hell for eternity. And all of us are among them. And we bring nothing in and of ourselves to the table to set us free from the wrath of God. Nothing. We are the ones who offended Him. We are the ones who took out the thorns and pierced them into his head. We are the ones who took out the whip and smacked his back. We are the ones who forced him to carry the cross up the hill. We are the ones who took the spear and put it into his side, who took the hammer and nailed him to the boards. We are the ones, says Peter in Acts chapter 4. You, you are the ones who killed him. And it's the Jews who had been gathered in from the diaspora. 3,000 of them would become Christians that one day. What must I do to be saved, they cried out. There's only one answer. The wrath of the Lord is massive. And I want to consider it a little bit. This is graphic and phenomenological imagery. There's a big word. That's a FUD word. P-H-D. See, You put it up there and everybody says, what does that mean? What are phenomenon? Stuff that happens. That's it. Stuff that happens. Stuff that people experience. So phenomenological language is language or imagery that is written from the perspective of one's experience. I want to keep that in mind. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of battle cry, trumpet blast against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. This is written as if Zephaniah is seeing it work itself out right in his life. He's visualizing it and he's explaining it as if these are experienced phenomena. And I think that can help give clarity to how we're to understand it. I don't think we're supposed to be looking for a blood-red moon. Let me unpack it. This marks a shift from the sphere of life to the sphere of death. Eyesight is growing dim. I'm moving from brightness to darkness. It depicts war as bringing light, suffocating manifestations, shadows, smoke, gloom. As fire rises, smoke begins to fill the atmosphere and separate me from the only source of light. 
As my life begins to sink, everything increasingly grows dark. Shadows increase. All of this language is is from the perspective of someone who's dying. And they're trying to express it. What does it look like? What does it taste like? What does it feel like? And I think we're supposed to see, in the same way that we saw echoes of Genesis chapter 1 and echoes of the flood judgment as decreation, decreation. So God takes out of water and brings the land. And what the flood does is covers over that land back again with water. You go backwards in creation. So too, God starts with darkness, and then he says, let there be light. And now, you're pulling away the light, and all the spheres, even the the luminaries that God placed in the sky to give light, whether in the daytime or in the night, are all of a sudden getting clouded out. You are... So everything is upheld by the word of God's power, moment by moment. God is speaking. And you and I are breathing right now because God is speaking. And if He stops speaking, we will stop existing. That's how big our God is. And the imagery that's being built in our text is that all of a sudden, for individuals... At some level, he's going to stop speaking an experience of light. An experience of dark is going to overcome them. In Amos, Israel is expecting the day of the Lord. They're eager for it. And Amos says, To you, the day of the Lord is light and not darkness. I tell you, no. The day of the Lord will be darkness to you. Prepare to meet your God. I preached at a church not too far away from here. Some of you may have visited it before. And for whatever reason, at one point in the history of the church, and I've learned it's over a generation ago, one of the pastors had someone put on the back wall a massive mural that says, prepare to meet your God. Quotation from Amos 4.12. One of the most scary verses in all the Bible. I can't even... It's a declaration of punishment is coming upon you, Israel, because you've sinned. And they put that in the back of the church. I wouldn't have done it. I would have said something like, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus. It's much more hopeful, but depending on who your congregation is, maybe, maybe that was the right word. Somebody open up Isaiah 13 for me. I want you to hear how this works practically. Remember, I've talked about how day of the Lord isn't just the future big daddy. It was every pocket of God's intrusion was considered the day. And it was only after the fact that survivors were able to testify, as bad as that was, it wasn't all that the prophets were anticipating. There's still more to come. Because you're still here. And you're an enemy of the living God. Let's look at it. First, a text with Babylon. 
Isaiah 13, 9 through 11. Somebody good and loud read this, and you'll hear imagery that's very similar to Zephaniah chapter 1, 14 through 18. Anyone, good and loud, please. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. I'll put an end to the pomp of the arrogant, and lay low the pompous pride of the Now, this particular oracle of punishment is specifically directed toward Babylon, a Babylon that no longer exists, a Babylon that has already experienced the punishment of God in space and time, but which itself provides a picture of the great Babylon, the city of Revelation. Babel of the Babel Babel pride of the tower in Genesis 11 gives rise to Babylon, and it's the same word, it's the Tower of Babylon, and now Babylon the country, which ultimately destroys the temple. And because of the, what they did at that time, it becomes this sustained image of destruction identified with the serpent, so that in the book of Revelation, Babylon is the arch enemy of God, that God will overthrow. It is the city of hostility, filled with arrogance and pride, led by the beast himself. But here, this day of the Lord text is specific, specifically targeted toward a people in the Old Testament that are no more. And we don't hear about specific astrological phenomena, at least, that were accompanied, that accompanied this particular judgment. But rather, the imagery is descriptive of what people experienced in and of themselves. And God is saying, I'm going to decreate you. I'm going to bring you out of the sphere of life and take you into the sphere of death. I'm going to move you from light into darkness. And that's how we're supposed to read the prophecy. Let's consider the next one against Egypt and Cush. Ezekiel 30, 2 through 4. Ezekiel 30, Two through four. Who will read this one for me? And then somebody can also look up Joel 2. Who will take the Ezekiel text and who will take Joel 2? Thank you. So good and loud, Ezekiel 30, 2 through 4. Son of man prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, Wail, alas, for the day, for the day is near, the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nation. A sword shall come upon Egypt, and anguish shall be in Cush, when the slain fall in Egypt, and her wealth is carried away, and her foundations are torn down. A day of judgment and terror against Egypt. And how it actually worked in space and time, we're not certain. But we're clear, it's clear that God brought punishment on this people, and it's portrayed as the day of the Lord. How about against Israel? You'll remember the locust plague 
that overcame Israel in Job, Joel chapter 1 that was a sign that the Assyrians were on their way. And even the locusts became little instruments uh, as if they're little horsemen that are coming out over top of all the city in every crook and cranny. And the imagery was designed to point to the state of the judgment that God would bring through Assyria in the future. Or through Babylon. Through Babylon, rather. So, Joel 2, 1 and 2, and then 10 and 11. Good and loud. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness there is like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Ten and eleven. Sorry. Uh, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened. And the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Who can endure it? The day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? The sky will grow dark, and it will be a sign of ultimate judgment. As we ponder significance, I keep, keep Joel chapter 2 open. I want to look at two verses as we think about lasting significance of this text. Joel 2, 28 through 32. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your... Young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Read the very first line of that passage that you just started. 228. I'll tell you where to stop. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Right there. It shall come to pass afterward. Hear the time frame. Well, what was before? It was the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord will come, and it will come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Now, that passage should have sounded familiar to anyone who reads the New Testament. Where do we hear that passage quoted in the New Testament? Acts 2 by Peter. So, what was the context in Acts 2? Pentecost. So, there's... A whole bunch of drunk people, right? No, what does Peter say? They're not drunk. It's 9 a.m. They weren't up all night. Rather, what is taking place in this moment is to fulfill the words of Joel. And then he says, 
he adds something that Joel doesn't have, but it's tied in other texts that are saying the same thing as Joel, and it will come about in the latter days that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Joel said that will happen after the day of the Lord. How does that work? How is Pentecost after the day of the Lord? Let's ponder that. But the end of that Joel text said, before the day of the Lord comes, the earth will grow dark. Everything will, it'll fill people with terror. Using imagery very akin to what we have in Zephaniah chapter 1. How about this one? 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Hear that? The Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. That's how, God, that's how he will return. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. The second coming of Christ is portrayed as a day of the Lord event. What about the first coming of Christ? Let's consider not simply the timing, sound, and terror, but now look at verses 17 and 18. Yes. sound and terror of a impending catastrophe is so prevalent in so much of our storytelling in the Bible and outside the Bible that how often in movie making or in literature or in fiction or uh, in art uh, that we have this sense of the sound of coming doom, the impending, not usually the impending doom. And then the other part of it is that I'm struck by how nearly everyone, believer or unbeliever, anticipates catastrophe. That even those who are you know, focused on climate change, you know, in essence, they'll agree with us that we're heading to something that isn't very pretty. And um, it's, it's almost as if this idea of the timing, sound, terror of coming catastrophe is one of these things that's inscribed in our hearts uh, like right and wrong. And we just all know it's coming. That's the experiential element in the way that these words are expressed, um, it's something that we can all understand. And, and I think you're right. There's something in our soul. I mean, Hollywood makes big bucks off of this exact reality. Um, there was, you mentioned climate change, that movie, The Day After Tomorrow. That's an end of the, end of the world movie. Or Armageddon. Or Independence Day. It's all, it's all there. And, 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 and then we go to a movie like Braveheart, 
and we can actually get a sense for what battle produces. We can get a sense for war and final taste of life in the midst of the chaos of battle. And you bring all that together and you have this day of the Lord on a global scale. Jenny? Yes. Yes. And in a way comparable to the fact that no home in the United States was untouched by something that happened there, all of a sudden it will become even more personal. Not transferred through media, but something that we will experience face to face. Joel chapter 2 ended with the question, who can endure it? Who? can endure it. Look at the very final words. Here's God's declaration. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind. There seems to be a spiritual disability that's being talked about here. And yet it's bound up in the whole war scene because of the darkness. It's nothing is able to be recognized. And why will it happen? The clearest statement in all the book for why judgment is coming, because they have sinned against Yahweh. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. There's many war texts in the Bible that talk about the carcasses spread out like dung over a field and all the animals coming and eating them. But with that, this is also what would happen in the sacrifice. We learn about it in Malachi chapter 3, where they would take the beast of the sacrifice, and one of the first steps is to gut him, just like you would with a deer. And you empty out all of the entrails and all the other bad stuff, and it hits the ground. And we have in this text the, the mixing of war imagery and sacrifice all in one context. And it's as if those that God come, comes against are, are, the, are elements that are um, of least value, like dust, like dung will be their blood and their flesh, just flowing out. And then whether in verse 18, the silver and gold is referring to idols or money, and both problems are in this text, We have the idols of Baal, and then we have the traitors who are going down in verse 10. And so they they could be looking in either direction for their security. And the point is, we are not saved by silver or gold, but only with the precious blood of Christ. There is no salvation in anything, anyone else. Nothing else will be able to deliver them for the day of the wrath of the Lord. Where do I go? What do I do? I myself am part of the problem, hopeless and helpless underneath the wrath of God, unless somehow, perhaps, in my, verse 7, being silent before Him, revering Him, having a Godward reverence, if somehow that might pull me through the day of the Lord. Is that possible? That a dependent heart 
might actually meet a merciful God? So far, the text doesn't tell us. But the very fact that, it, that God is preaching rather than punishing those who are hearing this, preaching to rather than punishing, that by its very nature sets up the possibility that there is actually a way. That there is actually a way through the darkness. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end, he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. I I wanted to just camp on this verse. But I'll do it when I get to chapter 3, verse 8. And consider the jealousy of God. That it is right. That it is necessary. And that God's jealousy for his own supremacy is the ultimate loving thing that he could do. There is no more loving act than for God to be for himself. And for him to call us to that. Because only in that context can we be saved. Only in that context can we be satisfied. For he is the source of all things. He is rightly worthy of our affection because he is God. He is necessarily worthy of our affection because if he lowered himself and allowed us to live for anything higher than him, he would not be God anymore. And he is lovingly passionate for his own fame because it's only in that context, in our submitting ourselves to his supremacy over all things, aligning with his jealousy for his exaltation, only in that context that we can actually find help. If we look anywhere else and put anything else as a higher master than him, there is no salvation anywhere from this kind of a day. Here's how I want to end. Let's just ponder this. There's lots of words on the back, but I just I want to walk us through this. Have your Bibles open. I need some people to help me with some texts. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, and 9. Just two takeaway points. The second one, bigger. The first one, echoing last week, but I want to look at a different text. Just so we can feel it. Feel the seriousness of the great day of the Lord being near and having a bitter sound and being terrifying. Hear this text. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9. Who will read this for us? Thank you. Nope. She's... Everlasting destruction. That's what we're talking about. Shut out from the presence of God forever. Massively serious. So the call of the text is, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The great day of the Lord is near. Be silent before Him. This isn't just stop talking. This is a disposition of the soul that surrenders to Him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the only way, the only sovereign. Now this one. In this text, God does war against the sinner and against sin. In this text, God sacrifices 
is what he calls the slaughter. Now let's ponder how it is that Pentecost can come after the day of the Lord. That's how the text, that's what Joel said. These things will happen. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh after I bring my judgment. How does that work? And Peter can say, behold, what's being fulfilled right here at Pentecost, the outpouring of the spirit from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. This is indeed what was to flow out of the day of the Lord encounter. How can he say that? So let's look at some texts. First of all, Malachi chapter 3. Who will take Malachi 3 for me? Thank you. Next, we're going to look at Matthew 7. Who will take Matthew 7 for me? Thank you. And we're going to take Matthew 3. Who will take that one? Thank you. And John 1. I'll do that one. Good. So let's go Malachi 3. Malachi, final prophet of the Old Testament. Just before what we call the intertestamental period between the Old and the New Testaments. Malachi is the final prophet, and he associates the coming day of the Lord, recognizing that, every, that there were lots of intermittent day of the Lords, all of them anticipating something bigger. He associates the day of the Lord with the coming of a second Elijah. Elijah was a prophet, the ultimate prophet in the history books who looked the most like Moses. So Elijah was a pointer to Moses. And now what we're anticipating is a new Elijah. And if you remember how Deuteronomy ended, Deuteronomy ended anticipating a new Moses, a prophet like Moses. So what we're, Malachi says, the day of the Lord is associated with the coming of a second Elijah and with the return of God's presence to the temple. Jesus is going to say he's the temple. And with the burning, of, with fiery burning. All of that's associated with the day of the Lord. So Malachi 3, 1 and 2. Elijah, a new Elijah is going to rise before the day comes. He's going to be a pointer to that day when the Lord will come in fire to his temple, consuming his adversaries. But something's going to come with Elijah's preaching, this new Elijah, that can actually preserve people from the destruction. Now, Matthew 7, 7 through 11. Actually, it's not Matthew 7, it's Matthew 11. 17? It is? Okay. Scott says it's Matthew 17, 7 through 11. I can look. 
No. Matthew 11. It is Matthew 11, 7 through 11. This is he of whom it is written. John the Baptist is the one of whom Malachi spoke. And then he cites Malachi chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger before you. John is Elijah, who is to prepare the way for the day of the Lord. Now, John the Baptist pointed to Jesus as the sword bearer and as the sacrifice. He was the instrument through whom the day of the Lord would come. And he was the sacrifice that would stand and receive the day of the Lord on behalf of those who believe in Him. Matthew 3, 11 and 12. Who had that one? Matthew 3, 11 and 12. Don't look to me. I must grow. I must decrease so that he might increase. I simply baptize you with water, but the one who comes after me will baptize you with water and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hands, and when he starts swinging, he will gather his wheat into the barn, but all the chaff he will throw away. He is the instrument of divine vengeance. But he's also something else. Behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. John 1, 29. He's the one with the sickle, bringing the judgment and separating the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats, but then He's also the Lamb who bears the sins of the world. So that at the cross... That future day of the Lord that awaits all of humanity intrudes into the present for those who believe. Christ bearing God's wrath for believing sinners. The cross is the day of the Lord. And then what flows out of the day of the Lord is nothing less than new creation. Somebody read Matthew 27, 45 and 46. Well, actually, let me just say it. It's at the crucifixion. And what comes at the crucifixion? Why does every single one of the gospel writers tell us this? Darkness. Darkness fell 
for the entire afternoon. And then we read in Acts 2, which we already cited from the perspective of Joel, in Acts 2 saying, the sky will grow dark, the judgment of God will fall before the great day of the Lord comes. Now, at the cross, the day of the Lord intrudes, but not for everyone. New creation is not where everyone is living. In fact, most of the world is still in Adam rather than in Jesus. So we have this overlap of the ages. And for those who are still in Adam, there is an end coming, a definitive end. And what it is, is the second appearing of Jesus. How it all works out time-wise is secondary to the fact that when he returns, that's when the punishment will rise. So there's a future day of fury that is still waiting the many, the multitudes who do not know and do not surrender. But believers are safe. Isaiah 53, 5, he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. The chastisement of God, the wrath, the day of the Lord wrath, he poured out on Christ, just like he did at the flood generation, just like he did at Sodom and Gomorrah, just like he did to the Canaanites. He pours it out on Christ on behalf of sinners. And the sacrifice becomes the substitute. And we don't get burned up. Celebrate the work of Christ. And let it move you to tell the countless thousands or the one in your own family or your neighbor the only means for saving yourself from that future day. Romans 5, 1 and 9 through 11. Who will read that for me? Romans 5, 1, 9 through 11. Somebody new. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Since, therefore, we've now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by His blood. <coughs> reconciled to God so that we are saved from the future wrath. That's what comes in Jesus. I just want you to see the framework. What Zephaniah is anticipating, the New Testament authors are saying, has been experienced in the person of Christ for us. And that's why the day of the Lord will not be darkness to us. It can be light. We can be awake when He comes, anticipating that coming. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Here's our final verse for the day. God considers it just to repay, to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed. Suffering should not be expected to be delivered. For, we should not expect to be delivered from it necessarily until that day, but it will come. 
When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day, to what? Be glorified in his saints, to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10. The day of the Lord is already, the day of the Lord is not yet. And we're living in a window of the year of the Lord's favor as we await the day of vengeance of our God. But the only way we can await that day with peace in our hearts is because the vengeance of God has already come upon the Messiah for us who believe. But it will burn up countries, nations, people groups, The wrath of God will be satisfied because He is always a good judge. And He can only justly pardon us because He already satisfied His wrath on Christ. Mercy is not cheap. Amazingly costly. But real. And we can rest in it. Father, we tremble at your mercy. We praise you for your provision. We don't praise you enough. We don't stand in awe enough. We don't take our sins serious enough and savor the Savior enough. But we pray that it would come in increasing measure. God, we were so guilty, we can smell the smoke on our clothes. It was that close to us, and yet you averted us from your flames. Already averted us from your wrath. And we celebrate today our suffering Savior, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father, and it's in his name that we pray. It's in his name that we rest Help us endure today knowing that you are already for us in Jesus and will with him graciously give us all things, even eternal life. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi. Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi Meyer. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.